How can you even defend a position you believe blindly or never even truly studied? Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses are not Christians. They believe in an entirely different Jesus, a Jesus that never even existed. Is your life here on earth meaningless and purposeless? Ask Bertrand Russell. He says that our existence here is pitiless indifference. Being in a Christian home makes your kids no more a Christian than them standing in the garage makes them a car. They need to hear the gospel of Christ and receive the free gift of salvation personally. Welcome to Contending for Christ Apologetics, where we contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to C4C Apologetics. I'm actually in my kitchen slash dining room right now. I'm going to try to make a a podcast here out here because we got a lot of the pictures taken down in the office and now it sounds I think a little bit echoey so I want to try to do it out here so I can't guarantee you that dogs won't get around or get out and I can't guarantee you that the kids won't get out <laughs> so uh, but I want to go ahead and talk about determining the one true religion determining the one true religion. As I mentioned in previous episodes, you, you see the classical philosophical arguments, the five major arguments for God's existence, they don't get anybody to the Christian God, namely Jehovah and Jesus Christ. They simply only gets one from a state of atheism or agnosticism to a state of either a deism or a theism view. And from that point, it's imperative that we're able to get them into a monotheistic God and reveal the truthfulness of a Christian God that we call Jehovah or Yahweh, with Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. So you're probably wondering, how does this actually happen? Especially when it's reported that there's over 4,200 religions in the entire world. Is there even such a thing as one true religion? And if you remember when we talked about laws of logic, specifically the law of non-contradiction, that no opposing truth claims can equally be true at the same time. So if Christianity and Shintoism are completely different from each other and both claim to be exclusively true, either one of them is true while the other is false or they simply are both false. If one of them is true, though, how do we determine the actual true religion? Well, I believe you can go off trying to refute different religions, but with 4,200 of them worldwide, you're going to be spending a lot of research, a lot of time studying, and a lot of time trying to refute 4,200 religions. Rather than trying to attack all the religions, or not really attack, but refute all the religions, how can we demonstrate the accuracy and veracity of the Christian God in the Christian religion? After all, if we can reveal strong evidence that Christianity is the one true religion, then that deals with the other 4,199 of them. But how do we even do that? You see, in this episode, I want to show you four areas that reveal what I believe is the veracity of the Bible, which points to the Christian God, Jehovah, and Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. You see, the Bible declares a consistent message throughout all 66 canonized books. It's the message of the fall of man, the wickedness of man, and the redemption of man. Parts or even all of the message can be seen throughout the various writings of the Bible. And remember, these writings span 1,400 year period and are written about 40 different authors. Many of these people in the Old Testament didn't even know the other people. They weren't contemporaries with the exception of a few like Daniel, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah who all were exilic prophets. Such a consistent message, spanning almost two millennia from about 40 different authors, reveals the so-called telephogame is a farce, and that the message was actually truly divinely given by the creator of heavens and the earth, for you and for I. 
Furthermore, while many religions are more geared towards a particular region, such as Buddhism in the Far East, Hinduism in India, Shintoism in Japan, or the Christian religion here in the West, the Christian religion is actually a universal message in a belief that is not relegated to a demographic, but rather it's a belief that's universal and transcendent across all times, all cultures, languages, and people. You know, another amazing fact is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran community. It's actually there that the Bible and the so-called telephone game is put to the test and put to rest. There are writings found there from 200 to 100 CE, much older than the manuscripts discovered prior to that date. And also, the Great Isaiah Scroll, if you haven't looked at it, seen it, checked it out, I encourage you to do so. That sheds an enormous amount of light on the transmission of scripture and the meticulous copying that the scribes had to perform in copying the manuscripts. This manuscript is 1,000 years older than any other manuscript previously found. It's about 2,000 years old, and comparing it with the next oldest copy of Isaiah reveals extremely minor variations. For a period of 1,000 years, that's actually a very monumental feat. Or at least a prophesied preservation of scripture that God declared. The preservation of scripture and the consistent message points to an amazing feat to maintain God's written revelation of mankind, of himself, to us. You see, the second area that helped shed the light on the truthfulness, truthful, I can't talk, but the truthfulness of Christianity is that of prophecy. While Christianity is not the only religion that claims prophecy, it's said about one-third of the Bible is prophetic. Islam can't claim that percentage, and Mormonism can't claim a single fulfilling of any of the prophecies in the doctrines and covenants. If you want to check that out, go ahead and check out the C4C YouTube channel, LDS Mormonism Playlist, for more information on Joseph Smith and his failed prophecies. But I only want to talk about three writings of prophecy in the Bible, while there's many more. I'm limiting my focus only on these three. First is going to be the writings of Ezekiel. If anyone knows anything about the history of Israel, there were two major dispersions in their existence. First was the Babylonian captivity, in which Israel was being corrected for their idolatry, which God had allowed to continue for about 800 years without incident. The same God who delivered the Israelites out of the Pharaoh's hand, crossed the Red Sea, conquered the Promised Land, gave them the monarchy they desired, and defeated Goliath, was betrayed and forsaken by the people whom he blessed. So God used the Babylonians, or Habakkuk calls them the Chaldeans, from 605 B.C. through about 586 B.C. to bring the Jews back into bondage to discipline them, taking them from Jerusalem to Babylon. And once God freed the Jews around 536 B.C. under Persian ruler Cyrus, many of the Jews didn't even return to Jerusalem. The second major dispersion is found in the 8th chapter of the book of Acts, where Saul, Saul of Tarsus, later to be known as Paul, and the religious leaders of the day had authority to arrest and even kill those that taught and worshipped Jesus. This led to a massive dispersion of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. Once again, we can see that what Satan meant for evil, God actually used for good, in that they, they helped evangelize different Roman provinces, and many people got saved across the known world at that time. But from this dispersion, the Jews never returned back to the land at least not as a whole, and the Israelite nation was no longer recognized. However, 
Ezekiel ended up prophesying in the 37th chapter, verses 21 and 22, that not only would Israel regain her identity, but no longer would she be divided into two kingdoms, namely Judah, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom, but rather they'd be one united kingdom again. Such was the case in 1948 in Israel gaining her statehood again. This is fascinating biblical prophecy that was prophesied around 588 BC, 2500 years prior to its fulfillment. And while we're speaking about the Babylonian captivity, it was the prophet Isaiah who wrote about 100 years before Babylon came, where Isaiah wrote and revealed not only that the Jews would be freed by the Persian ruler, but that it would be by a man called Cyrus. And we read about this in Isaiah 45.1. During Belshazzar's drunken festival, the gates were in fact left open. This is seen in history. Just as Isaiah prophesied a century or two ago prior to it happening, one of the ways that the people got into Belshazzar's area, his kingdom, is because the gates were left empty. Something Isaiah talks about in 45 verse 1. Amazing. Some of the strongest evidences of biblical prophecy being fulfilled, though, is in the book of Daniel. One of my favorite books is Daniel, who was alive before, during, and after the Babylonian captivity. He's what we would call a pre-post-exilic prophet. And after the Babylonian captivity, as late as 536, he writes about the coming of three other kingdoms. He reveals that Babylon would fall to the Persians. And the Persians would fall to the Greeks, and the Greeks would fall to the Romans, and in that particular order. And not only that, Daniel 11, he actually prophesies that the Greek kingdom, which would come about 500 years after he prophesies this, would be broken up into four kingdoms, given to four Greek generals. And that only two of them would gain any type of prominence, namely the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid empires. Cassander and Lysimachus didn't gain much nobility. And if that wasn't enough, Daniel 11, verses 5 and 6, God records prophecies that the king of the north, the Seleucid king, would make an alliance with the daughter of the king of the south, Ptolemy, by marrying her. We actually see this fulfilled in Antiochus II and Berenice, Ptolemy II's daughter, around 253 BC, more than 300 years after Daniel prophesied this message. So we're continuing to make a case to show how Christianity can be exclusive, can be the exclusive one true religion. A lot of people ask that question. We've seen the consistent transcendent message across history, as well as some amazing prophecies being fulfilled in the past. Now let's examine the culprits who are actually responsible for proclaiming the Christian message throughout the known world, the New Testament writers. I go into this topic a little more in depth in a different episode, so I encourage you to check it out. But there's five reasons why I believe, and many others, that we can actually trust the witness statements of the New Testament. Check out my Easter apologetic series that published recently on the YouTube channel, and I'll talk about the eyewitness reliability of the New Testament. Think about it first. If they were trying to create a religion, why would they include embarrassing details about the religion or embarrassing details about the giants of their faith? Peter, who's the great church leader whom Jesus said, on this I will build my rock. Why would it record details about Peter denying Jesus three times, as well as Jesus calling Peter Satan? What about the fact that the bold men of faith all became cowardly lions 
during the arrest, trial, and crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and that the only ones who were at the cross was John and a group of women. While we're on the women, why do you think they wrote women discovered and reported the empty tomb? If they were trying to make up a religion, they wouldn't have used women as an eyewitness account, eyewitness testimony in the first century because to them in that culture, they were not credible witnesses during that time. What about this God-man Jesus who's seen eating dinner with sinners and even communicating to prostitutes and leopards? And even called Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan, which I believe is translated as Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung, by the religious people. Why would him record embarrassing details about this Savior? It doesn't seem like a good way to pass off a newly established false religion. But even that archaeologically, archaeology even cooperates their story. Because they write about specific details that were unknown to history until excavations uncovered the artifacts. This is one thing I love about archaeology. You see, it was in 1888 that the Pool of Bethesda was actually discovered. In the 19th century, documents were found revealing that Quirinius was indeed a man in governmental position as early as 11 BC that Luke talks about in the census in his second chapter of the book of Luke. Finally, Pontius Pilate's stone was discovered in 1961, confirming that this man, in fact, did exist. And this man, in fact, was the governor of Judea during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Archaeology even corroborates their story. Think about what motives would the apostles have? What motives would these disciples have to create a fake religion? You see, they lost their jobs. They lost their homes, their families. They lost their places in the synagogue, their livelihood. They lost everything. And the majority of them were scattered by the Great Dispersion Acts 8. And even history records the flogging that many took in the martyrdom of almost all the apostles. These people had absolutely nothing, zero, zilch to gain and everything to lose to go ahead and promote this religion. Whatever they saw, i.e. footstomp, the resurrection, they believed and knew Jesus physically rose from the dead. Finally, think about the half-brother of Jesus by the name of James. This is a very quite telling piece of evidence for the truthfulness of the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it. What would it take for you to believe your brother or sister that they are God? What would they have to do for you to come to a conviction that they truly are God? I mean, Jesus told his family later in life that he was the Messiah, and James and others didn't believe. But later we found James is a committed believer. Not only that, but extremely devout Christian, and I believe the pastor of the Jerusalem church. What had to have happened to change his mind? The only proof to show him that his half-brother was truly God was that Jesus Christ of Nazareth physically resurrected from the dead. In the end, how do we even know that Christianity is the only true religion? No other religion claims the physical, bodily, corporal resurrection of their Savior and provides such hard evidence to corroborate its account. If anyone can legitimately refute the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then Christianity would completely crumble. But neither the swoon theory, the hallucination theory, the stolen body theory, or the uh, misplaced body theory, none of them have any basis on their belief. They're all easily refuted with plenty of holes in it. After all, as Paul said, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, our faith is in vain, and we're still left in our sins with no payment on our way to hell. Why follow a religion that's proven to be false? However, the re resurrection has never been disproven, never been 
refuted throughout the entirety of church history. We read, like I said, that most of the apostles died a martyr's death, not for what they believed, but for what they saw and what they say. Let's assume they died for a belief that was not substantiated or that they made the entire religion up. After all, it's likely that Muslims will die for a belief. Let's just say that's true. It's highly unlikely, unreasonable, that all these men would take this lie to the grave. But let's say they did. If the local people simply pulled Jesus' body out of the tomb and said, here he is, he never physically left, he never physically rose, his body's still here, what they're talking about is just lunacy, then one would imagine the religion would lose all evangelistic steam and it would simply die off. Even if the apostles claimed Jesus rose, but the early disciples and followers heard and saw the body of Jesus afterwards and seen in fact that he didn't actually physically rise, do you really think they could continue claiming he did and Christianity would continue to explosively grow? The mere fact that the disciples continued telling people that Jesus physically rose is because they either saw his physical resurrection or the empty tomb was never ever disproven. We even see in extra biblical writings that this resurrection continued for many years after his crucifixion. Seen by Josephus, who was actually a traitor to the Jews and liaised with Rome, Pliny the Younger, Tacitus, and even a cynic by the name of Lucian of Samosota. All these biblical writings, or I'm sorry, not biblical writings, all these extra biblical writings, reveal that the early church began based upon not a belief or a teaching, but it began based on an event the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So back to the original question. How does one determine the one true exclusive religion out of 4,200 religions of the world? It's by not refuting all other religions. We see support for Christianity through the transcendental Christian message, through 1,400 years of writing, through archaeology and eyewitness accounts confirming the veracity of it, amazing fulfilled Bible prophecy, but ultimately... We see the truthfulness of Christianity by examining the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he truly rose physically and that tomb is empty, then what he said must be true because he would have proven to be Emmanuel, God with us. And his message and his doctrine is exclusive to Christianity. And any other religion that teaches contrary to what God says is proven to be false because Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I pray that you consider not only the evidence for God's existence, but the evidence for Jesus of Nazareth and his resurrection about 2,000 years ago. He died for you and to pay the penalty for your sins so you could have eternal life. I pray you've made this decision, or at least consider making this decision before it's too late. So thanks for checking in, guys. Till next time, God bless. Thanks for listening. We pray this ministry glorifies God and edifies you, the listener. For more great content, including videos, blogs, newsletters, and a free ebook, check out our website at c4capologetics.weebly.com. You can also email us at c4capologetics at gmail.com with questions or ideas for future episodes. We truly appreciate you. Please like, share, and comment on this episode, and don't forget to subscribe for future episode notifications. Thanks for checking in, and remember to be bold and keep contending for Christ.